0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only
1: at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Well, put on your dancing shoes, everyone! Because look like the, pre- the Supreme Court wants us to boogie all the way into the 2024 election tonight on Laura Coates Live. If you've paid attention to all the legal cases this week, well, you'd think it's one big tap dance, wouldn't you? Ruling after ruling, appeal after appeal, and today, a two-step by the Supreme Court itself. It rejected a request by Social Counsel Jack Smith to fast track a decision on whether Trump has immunity from federal prosecution for crimes that he committed allegedly in office. The Supreme Court, now they didn't explain why and there were no noted dissents. In fact, the release was a single sentence ending with the word denied. So what does all this mean? Well, you know that March 4th date that Jack Smith wanted for the start of Trump's election subversion trial, yeah, well, that likely ain't happening. It could be much later than that now, just so we're clear on that. We'll talk more about that tonight. But the question remains why kick the can down the road? It's almost a surefire bet that SCOTUS will have to take up this uh, again at some point, and maybe even sooner than you think. An expedited review of the case is already underway in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which will hear oral arguments on January 9th. It's pretty quick. And however that court may rule, either side, guess what? You guessed it, is likely to appeal. So why wait? I mean, don't the American people have the right to know the answer? Does he have immunity or not to this right now? But I mean, given the zip lips of the justice, I mean, it's hard to know which way they're leaning or how they're thinking about this very important issue. But could it have something to do with a big landmine right in the middle of this dance floor? You know what I'm talking about. The 2024 election. It's the thing that makes this critical legal question so fraught with politics. For a deeply unpopular court, you know why, in a deeply divided country, I guess we know why, it's inevitably going to anger a whole lot of people, no matter what the decision ends up being. You rule against Trump, and part of the country thinks it's thumbs on the scale of justice in one direction or another. You rule in his favor, and the other part sees those scales tip in the other direction. Getting a little notch from the seesaw, I'm sure, action you're talking about? Well, even Jack Smith seems aware of the political peril because remember his filings on the immunity dispute talked a lot about the quote, public interest. But as my friend and colleague, Ellie Honig points out, Smith didn't mention the election specifically.
0: When it comes to the question of whether it needs to be expedited, it's is there a need for speed here? And because Jack Smith was unwilling or unable to say, I'm trying to get this in before the election, All he was able to give was a bunch of generalities. And apparently the court found that uh, unpersuasive.
2: Well, as for Trump, well, he wants this dance to go on. He's the one that set the landmine in some respects. He would be in a much more favorable position if all this were decided, let's just say, after the election. Then he could cut the lights and stop the music. And that's it. If he wins, of course... Whether it's this case or any other, if he wins the presidency and we're talking about a federal action, he could have them all dropped. Poof, gone. As far as that landmine goes, he's still out there trying to set more for every legal issue he's facing. He's saying this today after Colorado Supreme Court took him off the ballot.
3: They're trying to take the election away from the voters,
4: and they sue uh, anytime they can. And this one is really a crazy one. And if they ever did that, it would be so bad for this country. You have no idea. And you, you understand. It would, be, it would be a big problem for the country.
2: So how long can we dance as a country before stepping on one of those landmines? Or can we maybe avoid them altogether? Time will tell. Let's get right into all this with the former Trump White House uh, attorney, James Schultz. He is there. And CNN legal analyst, Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Gentlemen, good to have you here. Doing a whole lot of dance analogy. So get ready to swing with me on this one. James, let me begin with you, okay? So look, no explanation was given, Jim. No noted dissents. The question on everyone's mind is why won't the high court? Just answer this question. We know it's going to get to them eventually. Why not answer it now?
4: So as far as the expedited piece of this goes, clearly the Supreme Court wasn't buying what Jack Smith was selling here. (laughs) I thought that they were going to take it up. They didn't take it up. But there is some... There is a bright spot here in that, you know, we know that the, that the D.C. Uh, appellate court is taking this very seriously. They already have an expedited hearing on the thing. It's going to have an aggressive briefing schedule. This thing is going to get before an appellate court very quickly. I don't think the former president has a strong case on this immunity. He's trying to apply something that is traditionally in the civil context to the criminal context. I don't think the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is going to go his way on it, and then it will be right back in the hands of the Supreme Court, and they can make a decision at that point whether they want to have a, a, an expedited briefing schedule, and depending on outcome, who knows, maybe they don't take it up at all, but that remains to be seen.
2: You know, Michael, that's a good point in the idea of, of of the why and, of course, process. And there's normally an order of things, right? It goes from the lower court to mm-hmm. the appellate court, and then can find its way for a petition to say, "I want to hear the Supreme Court hear the case at all." They try to leapfrog all that, as you as you well know, knowing the gravitas in this entire case. But the D.C. Court of Appeals, the Circuit Court, is going to hear the oral arguments, and it's not that long way. It's January 9th. I mean, we're showing everyone a calendar oh. right now. It's coming up pretty quickly. It's days before the Iowa Republican caucuses. The trial is supposed to begin on March 4th. Is this likely now they're not going to take up the case to push that trial date out of March and maybe much later?
3: Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad to be with all of you and and happy holidays to you. I I do think it's likely that the March trial is moved. I mean, I just can't see how that date holds given where we are. And really, um, this is a witch's brew of their own concocting. (laughs) Uh, if you will, and that being the department, Um they've waited. We're now in the, the, you know, we're right before an election. This, these events that we're talking about happened right after the last election. So we've had about a three-year period that this case could have been brought. Instead, for whatever reasons, and no, not pointing fingers at anybody, we we find ourselves here uh, heading right into an election. And the, and the Department of Justice is typically very. Uh, loathe to uh, uh, give the appearance, at least, that they're interfering with an election. That doesn't seem to bother them at this point because we're, there's, there's all these things that have been put in place and these machinations, and nobody wants to just say that this is about trying to get the case tried before the election. So we try to say, well, it's of urgency, and well, the people need to know, and we try to talk all around it or dance around it, as, as you say. Thank you. You were listening to my analogies. All right, Michael Moore. Thank you. I'm with you all <laughs> the way through, right? But that's that's taking them nowhere, right? I mean, in, in the Supreme Court is nothing if not a body that is concerned with process, procedure, and rules. I mean, they tell you what kind of paper you can write on and how big the print can be, and, and what you wear, and what I mean, all those things. And so taking it out of line was a big deal. I mean, taking this out of time and out of turn and trying to leapfrog over a case. Uh, that was pending already in the D.C. Circuit, I think, was a bigger deal than maybe Jack Smith anticipated. But I also think it will push this case out. Hmm. Uh, it, it, there's no question we're going to end up at the Supreme oh. Court to make these ultimate decisions, but it's going to push the case out uh, at some point.
2: Jim, you're, you're um, agreeing or what? So, yeah, I think it is gonna
4: have some delay, but I think there is potential that this thing goes to trial in May, June, rather than March, April, right? Given the schedule from the DC Court of Appeals, I do think there's an opportunity for them to get this in prior to the conventions, if you will. They have been dancing around it. It is about the election, there's no doubt about it. They wanna get this in earlier rather than later, and so that this information, and when they talked about public interest, they're clearly talking about getting this information before the American public getting a verdict in the trial, in a criminal trial against the former president who's running for president, in before the election so that the American people can make that decision one way or the other if we have a convicted felon on the ticket, right? So I think that's something that's going to be you know, front and center. They have been dancing around it. You're absolutely right. But I do think there's an opportunity for them to get it in beforehand. And as it relates to, to not bringing cases around an election, DOJ's policy typically in those instances applies to bringing indictments, right? No October surprises, no September surprises. surprises, you know, in terms of indictments of elected officials or candidates who are on the ballot. This is something, again, that has been going on for a number of years. No surprises in terms of the fact that they have a he's been indicted. It's going to go to trial. And what happens at that trial really is, you know, the DOJ is prosecuting it, but then it's in the hands of the judges. So I'm not sure that long standing policy applies in this instance.
2: Well, you know, also, we're we're all assuming here that Jack Smith contemplates that it's only going to be one candidate at the time that he actually brought the trial and brought the case and asked for all this. Obviously, Trump is a political front runner. But part of the entirety of this case involves whether someone's above the law, whether one is going to simply say, by virtue of being a president of the United States, I will forever have cover or not for anything I may have done while office and beyond. So I think there is a really vested interest in all of this, even outside of a presidential election year. But I do wonder about this point. You both raised it in different ways. Do you think the Supreme Court, knowing full well that they are not the most popular as they were in the past, There's a lot of doubt in terms about about their objectivity and beyond. Um, Are they looking to this moment to say, we want this process, we need this process to take its absolute by the book, step by step, because we want to make sure the public thinks that we are not taking it out of their hands. Are they looking for a little bit of cover here, Michael, to suggest, look, it might get (laughs) to us, but it's got to be the proper way that everything else has to
3: I think that's right. I mean, I think they're looking at it to try to give the appearance at least that uh, this is a legitimate uh, process and they're not make, bending any rules to try to get to the former president, no matter what their dislike or disdain for him or the public's, do, you know, maybe, may or some segments of the, of the public, uh, you know, maybe. Um, you know, but, but the reality is, I mean, we, we keep talking around this idea that um, a, a normal criminal defendant, Would oftentimes waive their speedy trial right. They have a lengthy time period before they could go to trial. There would be discovery. There would be all these things Mm -hmm. that happen. There wouldn't be people with the gas pedal on from the prosecution side trying to get the case. Except that in this circumstance, they want to get, you know, to uh, uh, to trial before the election. I mean, that's wait. Hold on, Michael. I don't want to. I don't want to cut you
2: up. I don't want to cut you up. But I I think I want to understand something you said. You don't think that a, you've been a prosecutor you think they, that they want to slow roll something even, I mean, for the average defendant, they want to drag it out. I don't think that's true. They don't want to have a no, I, lengthy I, period. What, do you, no. what are you really saying?
3: I'm, I'm saying that typically the speedy trial rights are something that the d- defendants are very protective of. And so mm-hmm. when they were willing to waive those rights, you don't find prosecutors very often saying, well, there's no problem. We'll get you know, we'll schedule the trial. There is going to be a lengthy period of discovery. Um, there is no question here. That there has been an effort both in the federal courts and in the state court to move this case expeditiously i mean we had the state the, the district attorney here in georgia try to move a rico case with 19 defendants ahead after 60 days i mean that that's just unheard of and and, and was was illogical uh, frankly to even try to get the case there so there has been an effort to try to move the case forward and and again We've talked a lot about are we going to treat Trump as a normal person, and that is that nobody's above the law and it applies to all people the same way. And that may be the case, except here you have people who are sort of twisting themselves into a pretzel to get things done before he happens to be in an election. And, 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 you know, well, let, me, let not, me get Jim in this real quick. I
2: want to get his take on this, um, Michael. Excuse me. I want to get Jim on this in this point, because obviously you're talking about Fulton County and that is a very lengthy indictment. Jack Smith, though, Jim, mm-hmm. has four counts against Trump. You know, not the number of co-defendants in Fulton County does not appear to have quite the scope of a case, but point well taken about the gravitas and about the novelty of it being a former president. What do you see in terms of what Michael had to say?
4: So I think he's absolutely right as it relates to Georgia, right? That case is enormous. The Rico Rico case is is a big case, lots of defendants, very, you know, that case in a normal course would probably happen in 2026. And I don't believe there's any chance that that case is going to happen in 2024. You know, they can talk about it all day long, that they're going to have a a trial in August on that. That's never happening in August. That's, Pie in the sky. Now, as, as it relates to the federal case, Jack Smith was pretty surgical about his indictment. Right, he didn't pick a bro- he didn't go broad. He went very surgical in terms of the case he's brought. You know, the information's been exchanged, discovery's been is being was exchanged. And yeah, it's an aggressive schedule, but it's a tight case.
2: Well, we'll see what, who is right. You guys agree on a lot of things. I wonder what the Supreme Court will ultimately agree on. I bet it to take up this case. But when is the question? James Schultz, Michael Moore, thank you so much for joining me. If I don't see you, happy holidays and maybe the best of New Year's to you.
3: Thanks. same to you. Great you too. with you.
2: Thank you. Well, look, it's been a very long week long as in L-A-W-N-G. See what I did there? If you've got questions about what's going on with all these complicated legal cases, you're not alone. They're involving Trump. They're involving Giuliani. They're involving a lot of people. Guess what? We've got answers. We're going to go through some of your questions at the magic wall next.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or
1: sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
2: Look, there are plenty of legal headlines this very week to sort through regarding former President Donald Trump's candidacy in 2024. With us now to break it all down is CNN's Marshall Cohen. He's been closely following every single twist and turn. Marshall, I'm so glad that you're with me today at this magic wall and you match the magic wall. It look is. at you. I, this, I, I see what you're doing. This is wonderful. We have a lot of questions from people over the weeks. It's been a busy week. It's been a lot. There's, there's so much to unpack. And so I want to go to the first question we're getting from a lot of people here. And it is, if the Supreme Court is not taking up the Trump immunity dispute, then who is, Marshall?
5: It's a good question. So look, in the federal system, you got the trial court, the Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court. Trump is on trial and asked for immunity. The judge said, absolutely not. So he's appealing to the Middle Court, the Mm -hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals. But Jack Smith was trying to jump all the way to the Supreme Court. They said no today, so we'll we'll go back to the regular process, the way it usually works with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Oral arguments are scheduled for January 9th, but we all know what's going to happen after that, probably go right back to the Supreme Court.
2: Oh, take out the probably, it's going back to the Supreme Court, which is why everyone's saying, why not just answer the question right now? But they want the process as you lay out to go forward. It's still a really big question, though.
5: Yeah, all right, let's move on to the next one. This one's for you, Laura. Okay. Okay, has any president ever been granted the immunity that Trump is asking for?
2: Oh, no, we're in the wild, wild west, everyone, to think about. We really, really are. And the reason this is so important is because we have seen when it comes to maybe a civil matter with President Clinton, action before he was in office, a different ballgame. This involves a request. for immunity for criminal conduct that is being alleged while one's in office, it has never been asked before in this degree. And for these reasons. And so that's why everyone's leaning in to figure out how the Supreme Court rule. Don't they want to weigh in immediately? Because they've got to resolve this really important issue. So we are in novel territory. But as you can imagine, there's another question. A
5: lot of novelty. A
2: lot of novelty here as well. Does Trump have to be convicted of insurrection before getting kicked off the ballot? Talking about Colorado here.
5: Colorado, 14th Amendment. It's a great question. I've been getting this question all week. So the answer is not necessarily Hmm. the 14th amendment the text does not say anything about requiring a conviction of insurrection to disqualify someone because they engaged in insurrection look the colorado supreme court decided that trump is disqualified even without any criminal convictions there was a dissenting opinion there were three dissenting opinions one of them was all about this and he said you know what i don't think we can take this extraordinary step without a criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear, Trump is facing criminal charges regarding the election, but not insurrection. He was charged with conspiracy and obstruction. Jack Smith did not go nuclear and hit him with the insurrection.
2: And there was that lower court finding of an insurrection, but not a criminal actual finding in a trial, a very different ballgame game. That's right. So Civil case
5: versus the criminal. Got to
2: keep it all straight.
5: All right, let's wrap it up okay. with one of the most notorious legal figures uh. of our time, Rudy Giuliani. All right, Laura, after declaring bankruptcy, as he did just a few days ago, does Rudy Giuliani still have to pay the $148 million defamation judgment? The backstory here is that last week, A judge here in D.C. ordered him to pay that massive Mm -hmm. bill to the two election workers that he defamed in Georgia, whom he falsely accused of rigging the election. So he's bankrupt now. Does he still have to pay?
2: He even doubled down on it as well. And remember, I mean, you think about this. The real question is, if you don't have the money, what do you do about having to pay? Well, in some instances, in any bankruptcy court, the whole goal is to clear away your debts. You can't afford to pay them. Not going to have them on the books. Except if you're talking about willful and malicious behavior and conduct. Think back to Alex Jones, who infamously had a very high punitive damage against him as well, had the same bankruptcy discussions there. But because it was willful and malicious behavior towards people, as it was alleged and convicted, That was enough to say, no, no, you still have a responsibility. Now, what order you get paid? A very different story. You're talking about creditors in line. Oh, I doubt they'll get paid right away, but they will still have to be able to have themselves in line, number one. But also for willful conduct, as is alleged here, it doesn't go away. Really important conversation. Marshall Cohen, thank you so much for helping me today. You can always ask us your questions on any social media platforms using the hashtag AskLaura. Marshall Cohen, so great to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, next, a crisis at the border leading to a record-setting surge of migrants is a political solution in sight we're going to discuss. The major crisis unfolding at the southern border is leading authorities to warn the situation is at a breaking point. Right now, it's a complete bottleneck. Federal authorities are reporting a seven-day average of nearly 10,000 migrant encounters along the border this month. Numbers like that have not been seen since before the lifting of a COVID era restriction that allowed authorities to turn back migrants at the border. And it's got politicians and border states, both Republicans Republicans, and Democrats fed up. Look, it's the issue that everyone has long wanted to reform. Needless to say, it's entirely complicated because no one can agree on the best solution. Every president since Dwight Eisenhower has taken executive action, we know that, but this is still a problem today. It's an issue that has real political consequences. In fact, a recent poll shows that overall, people see immigration as the second most important issue in America, that just after inflation. And among Republicans, it's the most important. Just to show the stakes for 2024, take a look at this. Back in 2020, Trump and Biden were neck and neck on who voters thought did a better job on the border and immigration. Now, well, Trump is ahead by a whopping 23 points. Now for his part, Biden is trying to take action wants to make a deal with Republicans in exchange for more money for Ukraine. But do you think that's enough to bring on a kind of kumbaya type of moment where everyone's happy and braiding each other's hair? Well, you can think again, because Democrats on Biden's left flank are not having it. Some progressives say they cannot defend concessions from Biden on the issue of immigration. So with so many different voices, with so many different views, and one of the biggest issues in this country, the question really is, Can a solution even actually be found? Joining me now is Mark Esper, the former Defense Secretary under President Trump. Secretary, good to see you this evening. Thank you so much for joining. I'm sure you have been watching the news. And this surge is absolutely enormous. I mean, a seven-day average of more than 9,600 migrant encounters along the southern border. By the way, that's just this month, Secretary, and that's up from 6,800 in November. Why is there such a sharp increase now?
6: Yeah, first of all, Laura, it's great to be with you this evening. Um, in fact, I just uh, saw numbers come across that said that uh, November was another month where uh, the, the numbers exceeded 300,000. It's the fourth month in a row. Uh, now, I, that may be an inaccurate report, but it just tells you the scale of the numbers coming at us now. And, and what are the reasons uh, people believe uh, in some ways it's pent-up demand from COVID still, um, and people are making the track now when the weather is maybe a little bit more amenable uh, to making the crossing, uh, other factors, maybe they believe that uh, the administration is going to uh, impose new policy soon, who, who really knows? But the fact is, it's out of control, and uh, certainly many Republicans and, and many Democrats now see this as a crisis on the border, which it is. You know, The other startling numbers too, Laura, are that um, in FY23 alone, there were over 20,000 non-criminal citizens that, uh, uh, that were caught, to include 169 people on the terror watch list. And then that's not even accounting for Iranians and Chinese and Russians and and uh, people from Yemen and Syria, you name it. Uh, we just don't have a control of who's coming across our border and into our country.
2: While you were just talking, we were showing images of what is actually happening, what it looks like. And the images are quite stunning. And it, you, you add those to the figures you're citing and what we've just said, and people are— tuning in. They are leaning in trying to figure out what's next. And actually, the White House is now considering new border restrictions, turning back migrants at the southern border without the ability to seek asylum. Another one is expanding a fast-track deportation procedure. Another one is raising the credible fear standard for asylum seekers. And you look at that list of things that there are the possible compromises, the possible new border restrictions. Would any of that work to try to stem what we're seeing right now?
6: I think so. I think that's why that's on the table between uh, White House and Republican negotiators uh, right now as we speak. Uh, And clearly, President Biden has said, quote, he's willing to make a significant compromise. Uh, And and so we we know that's on the table. And look, this isn't just the United States. Uh, I think just this week, the European Union began changing its rules as well, some of which looks much like what you described. So I think um, if, if those items end up being in the policy changes that's being negotiated that we, we probably won't see now till mid-January at the earliest, the the, uh, the um, belief is it will, it will deter uh, further migration. It will allow the president or require the president to push people back much more quickly and accelerate uh, deportations and prevent them from getting in in the first place. So that should have a dramatic impact um, on the numbers. If you can couple that with uh, spending on additional border agents, uh, customs officers, uh, uh, judges, etc., and they're talking about numbers in the thousands to to raise those levels. Uh, then that could have a pretty good, uh, uh, pretty good impact.
2: Secretary, you know, as you can imagine, and I really appreciate you saying at the beginning, talking about the potential reasons for why we're seeing what we're seeing. It went beyond politics. It gave us information about the scope of it. It didn't start with this year or last year or the year before that or really the last five years. It really has been, in some respects, a continuation and a culmination of a lot of different things that have been happening over successive presidential administrations. But it always seems like immigration, secretary, becomes this political cudgel, no long-term solution to truly be found in the immediate um, run, at least. Is there a way to get past this without all of the politics undermining the ability to move the needle?
6: You know, you're right, Laura. It goes back many years, uh, multiple administrations, although we have seen a big uptick here since uh, 21 or so. But look, I remember uh, working for the Senate Majority Leader in, uh, I think it was 2005 or so, when we actually had a a plan on the table and required... Uh, members, senators from both parties uh, who got together and decided to come to a- an agreement on this, because at the end of the day, it is about immigration law, and Congress needs to make these changes. I'd lo- I think the law was first passed in 1965, amended in 1993, but boy, it's, it's well overdue for, um, for an overhaul. And if you can make some of these changes, and, and look, for Republicans, they're going to be demanding border security up front, and I'm sure for Democrats, they're going to be demanding action on Dreamers and others. But if you can get people into the room, and everybody lock arms and willing to kind of both share the pain and compromise, then you could get something going, but it's gonna take a lot of leadership. And I think it has to begin in many ways from the White House, Uh, but then you gotta get the the House and Senate leaders on board as well very quickly.
2: It is important, the idea of immigration laws, legislative branch, but as you know, as you mentioned, the executive branch being so, um, you know, important in this as well. You know, we spoke earlier this week, Secretary, about this, frankly, but today the former president, Donald Trump is now defending his use of the phrase poisoning the blood to describe illegal immigration. Listen to what he's saying now.
4: When you look at it and you look at what's coming in, we have from all over the world, not one group. They're coming in from Asia, from Africa, from South America. They're coming from all over the world. They're coming from prisons. They're coming from mental institutions and insane asylums. They're terrorists. Absolutely, that's poisoning our country, that's
3: poisoning the blood of our country.
2: I mean, you've heard that so many migrants, they're fleeing sometimes life or death. I mean, asylum by its very nature, sometimes contemplates those very dire conditions to flee from. I wonder what you make of comments like this and really the explanation of them. We were talking about how much humanity factors into diplomacy and immigration law.
6: Yeah, look, that language is not defensible. It's it's abhorrent, I, I think it's un-American. We, we are a nation of immigrants. I'm a grandson of immigrants. I think immigrants bring a lot to this country with regard to their dynamism, their entrepreneurial spirit, hard work, et cetera, et cetera. And my view is most of them are good people just here, just who just want to seek a better life. The problem is there's truth in some of what uh, the, the former president says when he talks about, you know, terrorists, because as, as I cited earlier, We know last year alone, 169 persons were on the terrorist watch list. And we know over 20,000 based on CBP numbers had criminal convictions or had criminal records. So, you you know, it allows them to use that language because there is an element of truth into that. But look, I I just think it paints the wrong picture of who we are, who most Americans are. We need immigration, but we need legal immigration and we need immigration based on merit, not just on who can make their way to the Southwest border and get in and, 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 and ask for asylum.
2: Well, as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. sounds like what you propose won't be either, but we will see how it all pans out. Secretary Mark Esper, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Well, up next, a very special guest is here with me tonight. Chef Marcus Samuelson is here to talk about elevating Black chefs like himself. Back in a moment.
1: Listen to the assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Well, you know him from Top Chef Masters, chopped all stars, the taste. How about no passport required? I could really go on with this list. But you know, my next guest is not just an award winning chef and restaurateur, he is truly committed to giving back to the community. And ahead of the holidays, Marcus Samuelson is partnering with Heinz's. Black Kitchen Initiative to launch a brand new event series where veteran chefs like himself will open up their restaurants and share resources with up and coming black chefs. He joins me now in studio. Marcus, I'm so happy to see you here.
7: I, we were doing so good. We were talking food and kids. <laughs> and then you throw in a term I've never heard, veteran chef?
2: I know. You know what? Oh I said it. Daughter. I heard it. I heard it. And I was like, <laughs> he's going to give me a lot of flack yes. for suggesting that he's old. But that's not what I mean. I oh mean season I get that. Season. 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 season something there you go. Better. Season. Yeah. Although I feel old these days with my kids who want to remind me that I'm old at times. But I'm young. You are I'm very young. young. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, you can stay now. Yes. Thank you so much. But you know what I love about you is many things. Things, mm. but one thing I really love is that you really are intentional about yes. using your platform to elevate, to Absolutely. like all a rising tide lifts all boats, mm-hmm. you embody that. Why is that so important?
7: Well, I mean, first of all, as a black chef, you know, I grew up in Europe and I cooked in three star Michelin restaurants in France, but America gave me the opportunities. And I am also extremely fortunate, right? Think about what the civil rights law, mm changed and did for someone like me as a black immigrant coming into, so it's not just, just being a black chef, also being an immigrant, having the opportunity to live out my dream here in America, right? Uh, I have to pay back, I have to give back, because if that wouldn't have happened, if civil rights movement wouldn't have happened, if laws wouldn't have changed, I wouldn't be here.
2: It's not just about sort of the illusion of mm-hmm. access, where anyone can be whatever they want to no. be, they actually have to have a network, a community, a tribe, and someone to look at them and say, I think you got something.
7: First of all, I think it's very important to understand that representation matters. And I just think that being a chef that has a large platform, my job is also to create uh, opportunities for the next generation. You see it in music, you see it in sports, Mm -hmm. you see it in law, right? And you had a mentor that, guided you through mm-hmm. a pro- very, very difficult process. So now, and I had an amazing mentor, Miss Leah Chase from Dookie Chase. She guided me through this process, how, how, how to navigate, right? When I came up in the 90s and early 2000s, and I'm forever grateful for, to, to that.
2: I went back and sort of our files, back in 2015, you're with mm-hmm. our beloved colleague, Anthony Bourdain, mm-hmm. and you had a chance to take him with you on a bit of a very personal journey, yeah. and you spoke about who you are and the comfort comfort with it. Listen to this.
7: Wow. When you're a black man, when you're an immigrant, when you're Ethiopian, when you're Sweden, I've been put in so many situations that I put myself into. So I'm actually very comfortable in being uncomfortable.
2: I mean, that's something that is so moving because Mm -hmm. it's a level of self-awareness some people don't have. The fact that you have grown accustomed to all aspects of your identity and comfortable in that space. When you hear that, what do you think?
7: Well, the first thing comes to mind: Wow, I miss that man so mm-hmm. much, and I got really, I, I get really emotional because he gave us so much mm-hmm. uh, and shared it with everybody. So, um, uh, rest in peace, resting in power, Mr. Anthony Bourdain, thank you for everything you gave us. Um, but I think food identity matters, right? And. The representation on our cooking is not seen in major media or in major, major print. Uh, the aspiration, why should we enter food? Why should cooking be on the same level as other crafts or mm. art form? And that's why I've been committed to writing because you have to document the journey. You mm. have to actually show uh, that whatever you read, you know, if it's hard to get access to the information, then the value proposition is not there.
2: So- What are you most proud of? I've always wondered.
7: Yeah. I would say beside my family, Mm -hmm. of course, um, the fact that I could stay in business in New York City, in the hospitality business over 30 years and navigated through pandemic, 9-11, financial crisis, and been able to do it through my restaurants. And obviously I haven't done it by myself. Mm -hmm. I've had an amazing team. Um, The fact that Metropolis, is, you know, at the PAC NYC Center. Uh, that's the
2: site that's of the World Trade Center. site where the
7: World Trade Center happened, right, where it was. It's a privilege and every day when I walk up the steps and get ready, uh, I think about that. And uh, I have a certain level of pride and, and uh, there's also no coincidences in life, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're speaking to someone that's, I was born in a hut, I was adopted I came to this country as an immigrant, so I, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of events that have happened in my life that you like. Oh my God, how is this happening? And opening Metropolis is one of those.
2: What has so um, been hard for me during this interview is the entire time I've been salivating, yeah, thinking about all the things you have made and talk about. And so, I'm just going to end this interview because. I actually have your food with me. Oh! And I don't yes, care. Like I know, yes, I know we're yes. I'm supposed to be fancy. Yes. But can we just end? Because I'm gonna have this. What is I'm eating we, the, the mac and, and, mac and greens? And, and and from Red Rooster and some corn bread. cornbread. Now, I don't know how many primetime shows will have greens during yes. their show, but nice. We're having them right now. I don't even want to offer you any No, don't. And Am I know, being rude? Did not give you any of yeah, this? No, no. We're done with the interview, but I'm gonna keep eating keep because eating. I'm just I'm I'm having a good time and I want to talk to you and I want you to tell me the secret recipes I know you gave me in the in the cookbook. Is that heaven, this is good? Actually, this is really good. Did that smoked gouda. <laughs> <laughs> we have an inside joke yeah. now, Marcus yeah. Samuels, Everyone, yeah. go ahead, go to break. <laughs> I'll be right here. Thank you so much.
7: FBI
6: is the United States' premier law enforcement agency. Ma'am, I need to take my seat. We have a zero-fail mission to
7: uphold, which means that we expect nothing short of perfection.
0: FBI, I need everybody to exit the train right now.
5: (laughs) Now, please stand as I administer your oath.
2: Welcome to the White House, Peter. Man, that show is called The Night Agent. It's actually the biggest title on Netflix. Next on the list, season two of Jenny in Georgia, followed by season one of the Korean drama, The Glory. Fourth was season one of Wednesday, and then Queen Charlotte, A Bridgerton Story. I wanna bring in Sean Ryan, creator and showrunner of Netflix's The Night Agent, Sean, congratulations. I mean, we don't normally get this data from Netflix, first of all. And for those of us who have seen The Night Agent, it's really not surprising. But more than 800 million hours, more than 800 million hours have been watched for this show. That's unbelievable.
8: We we had an idea back in March when the show premiered that, that the numbers were really huge. But... As time has gone on to, to, to see the list come out like this and to see the wonderful company that we're in, uh, it, it's really gratifying. It's really hard to make TV shows. And so when you mm-hmm. make something and it resonates with the public, uh, in this case, all across the world, because Netflix is global, uh, it, it, it's pretty great.
2: I mean, it tells you a lot about what people are leaning into right now. I mean, obviously, we're a year before a major election here in this country. But the idea of what it's about, a political thriller, it follows an FBI agent who works in the basement of the White House. People are already leaning in even more. He finds himself in the (laughs) middle of a conspiracy. I mean, given the kind of political environment we're living in these days, I wonder if that's what made people say, I've got to watch this show.
8: I think the show's got a great hook, which is due uh, to the author Matthew Quirk, whose book yeah. this is based on. Also called the Night Agent, uh, we found an incredible cast: Gabriel Basso, who plays Peter; Lucianne Buchanan, mm-hmm. who plays Rose. There, there are two leads. I, I think people just really responded to the chemistry, to the f- fresh faces on the show. I think we've got a, some incredible stunt work. So, yeah, the. The political climate may have had something to do with it. I think, I think there's a lot of interest on in what really goes on on in the inside a lot of curiosity, what's really happy in the world. And, and we tried to touch on some of that.
2: And I'm gonna tell my husband right now through this camera, stop watching this show without me because then he spoils everything for me. I'm telling you right now on television, stop watching it without me. Sean Ryan, thank you what's so you much. Together? <laughs> I, well, what's Well, I would, but together? they've got me on 11 o'clock at night on CNN and he wants to go to bed. So what am I to do? What am I going to do, Well, Sean? the beauty of what that what
8: you can watch it anytime you want. So, so you can schedule it yourself.
2: It's like you're in my head planning date night as we speak. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you stopped by, and congratulations.
8: Thank you so much.
2: Everyone, thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues.
0: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.
3: A new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.